Oh, Father, I just, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for who you are. And I thank you for this body, Lord. I just thank you for what a gift it is. And Father, this morning, again, we're going to open up and we're going to be, again, looking into your word. We're going to be looking into that, that area that every one of us has struggled with is the area of doubt. And so I want to, again, pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit. Would you guide us? Would you give us the insight that we need? And would you make it of permanent value, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our, our text this morning should be a familiar one. It's taken from James 1, 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Uh, well, practically speaking, first of all, well, what, what is wisdom? Wisdom is the power to perceive the word, the world, and the kingdom of God with literally a supernatural ability. Uh, it's really the ability to connect the dots in each one of those spheres in a way that points directly to and from the mind of God. And I mentioned many, many times the requirements or, or the conditions that God has set out for you to gain this wisdom. And there's basically three conditions. Uh, number one, you have to lack wisdom, and you have to understand that. Uh, number two, you have to ask God for it. And number three, you have to believe him when he says that he'll actually give it to you. Well, our text this morning focuses on condition number three. And again, James refers to it by saying this, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Well, clearly, doubt is not a good thing. It drives us between unbelief and faith itself, robbing us of our peace. It's a very dangerous place to be because it's kind of the way station between either faith or unbelief. And it's what cuts off the flow of wisdom from God to us, but it also needs to be understood for what it really is. And once again, the Greek word that James uses for the simple English word that we translate doubt is a much more complex word. It's, it's the word diakrino, made up of two separate words. Dia means separation. It actually means two. And krino means, means to distinguish, to decide, to judge. And it literally means to decide between two. And it can refer to legal decisions or just a simple act of differentiating between two things. But James uses the verb in the middle voice which means it's reflexive, which means in this passage, what he's describing is trying to choose between you and you. That is between the you that believe and the you that does not believe. As Guinness points out, the doubt itself differs greatly from what many people think it is, and that's, that's unbelief. You see, doubt and unbelief are not the same thing. Unbelief is where atheists live. It's the complete and utter rejection of the truth of who God is and what Jesus Christ did for us. Faith is the complete acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord and giver of life. 
It's the belief that he left heaven to become a man, that he lived a perfect life, and that he died in my place, and that by faith in him, I too can have eternal life. But doubt is this no man's land. And it's somewhere between unbelief and faith. This is what Oz Guinness says. He says, an all-important difference exists, therefore, between the open-minded uncertainty of doubt and the closed-minded certainty of unbelief. Because faith is crucial, doubt is serious. But because doubt is not unbelief, it is not terminal. It is a halfway stage that can lead on to a deepened faith as easily as it can break down to unbelief. I mean, to get that, I mean, what, what he's saying is doubt is the place that you find yourself in when you can't settle on faith or unbelief. And it's a miserable place to be. Quote, the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. But it's also a place that all of us have been at one point or another. I mean, doubters have extremely good company in Scripture as well. I mean, I'm looking at my namesake, Thomas, Doubting Thomas. He was called Doubting Thomas because he refused to believe the disciples when they actually told him they saw Jesus alive. We see in John 20 this, this statement. It says, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Oh, you know, doubting seemed to be a way of life for Thomas. You know, when Jesus told the disciples that they were heading back to Judea, to the house of Lazarus, they, know, they knew they were going to a very hazardous area. And so Thomas responds to Jesus' command by saying, oh, let us also go that we may die with him. That, that's Thomas's doubt on display. And again, when Jesus tried to calm his disciples, Thomas' reaction, again, was one of doubt. This is John 14. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled, Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? And, you know, Tom, Thomas wasn't alone in his doubting. I mean, John the Baptist doubted as well. You know, Matthew 11 says, After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? This is the same John the Baptist of which Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And yet he too struggled with doubt. Now in Genesis 15, in the Old Testament, we have Abraham's doubt about the son that God had promised him. In Judges 6, we have Gideon's doubts that God would provide a victory over the Midianites. Now those doubts proved so severe that Gideon wound up asking God for a sign. So he could know for certain what his will was. Elijah in 1 Kings, he's castigating Israel for their textbook illustration of what doubt really is. 
If you remember, Elijah had challenged King Ahaz to a showdown, a contest between Baal and the living God as to which God was the real God. And in 1 Kings 18, he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. And here's Elijah pointing out exactly what Oz Guinness was saying. He's saying doubt is not unbelief. It's the wavering between two different opinions. It's that no man's land between belief and unbelief. And that's exactly where Israel was. And, you know, Elijah points it out. He says, if the Lord is God, follow him. Well, that's, that's belief. He says, if Baal is God, follow him. That's unbelief. And then it says, but the people said nothing. And that's literally doubt displayed. And right after God proves his superiority by pouring out his fire on Elijah's sacrifice, Elijah gets threatened by Jezebel, and he gets overwhelmed by doubt. It says in 1 Kings 19, it says, So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. I say, how could that happen? I mean, mean, Elijah just participated in a spectacular miracle. And this utterly defeated Jezebel makes a completely powerless threat. And Elijah just collapses. That's the power of doubt. And 1 Kings continues. It says, when he came to Beersheba in Judah... He left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. ancestors. Now, Elijah's guilty of the very thing he accused Israel of. He certainly wasn't believing in the power of Baal, but he certainly wasn't believing in the power of God. And the result was there he was stuck in that no man's land that left him, quote, like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And so we have Abraham, we have Gideon, we have Elijah, we have Thomas, we have John the Baptist, all these great saints, great believers. They all fell victim to doubt. So understand, doubt is not unbelief, but James tells us clearly that doubt is a prayer wrecker. This is what he says. He says, for the one who doubts must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. See, doubt doubt is a black hole when it comes to prayer. But but so is wrong thinking about what doubt is in the first place. See, I I think we think, well, the opposite of doubt is is certitude. And and certitude, according to the faith preachers, is, is the key to unlocking the power of prayer. When it comes to prayer, there's there's far more to it than simply that. I mean, Jesus once said this about praying without doubt. He said this in Matthew 17. He said, I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. I I want you to know I tried that, and I also want you to know it didn't work. (laughs) Now, was it because I doubted? Or or was there perhaps another reason? You see, there's a critical question you have to ask yourself before you decide that you're going to ask a mountain to move from one area to another. The question is, why? 
do you want to do that? This is what James says about motive when we pray. This is what he says. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, I have no doubt, pun intended, that if I were to pray successfully for a mountain to move, it would certainly have a good reason. I would have to have a good reason why. Now, I once read about a church that actually did have a good reason. This was a church that was built into the side of a mountain and had completely run out of space. And they couldn't expand. They didn't have anywhere to go. And so they called for prayer and fasting to ask for God to kind of give them a solution to move a mountain. And believe it or not, through a series of coincidences, they just happened to be put in touch with a construction company who desperately needed Phil. And, and, and wouldn't you know it, they were willing to literally move a large chunk of that mountain in return for the free fill. They, they, this church prayed without doubting, and God did move a mountain because they prayed with the right motive. And Jesus also said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I've asked for a bunch of stuff in Jesus' name, and I didn't get it. Now, was that because I doubted? And does that mean if I can just get this doubt thing worked out, then I can literally have whatever I want, from Cadillacs to perfect health to business success? And you and I know there are folks today who will tell you that very thing. They'll tell you that as a Christian, you're a child of the king, and as a child of the king, you deserve to live a king's life, and all, there is that, all of that is there for you if you just learn to ask without doubting. And I, I'd like to say they're sadly mistaken, but I feel it's more sinister than that. I, I feel they are simply false teachers selling a false gospel. And see, when Jesus said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it, he wasn't giving us a license to ask whatever we want as long as we stick his name at the end of the prayer. Think about what praying in Jesus' name actually means. You know, if I asked you to do something in my name, I'm certainly asking you to do something as if you were me. Well, to ask in Jesus' name is to ask as if you were Jesus. And when you pray with his heart, his faith, his wisdom, and his desire to glorify his Father, Jesus says your prayer will be answered. But that also includes asking in faith with no doubting just like he did. Ask like Jesus asks, and that prayer will be answered. So how do we ask for wisdom? Or anything else, for that matter, without doubting? You know, it's one thing to ask for wisdom without doubting, because wisdom is, at least godly wisdom, is something we know that God wants for us to have. But what about all of the other things that we are inclined to pray for? I mean, is there ever a place for doubt in those prayers? Is there ever a place for, for wondering whether or not God thinks it is wise to answer this particular prayer? Now, Lord, help me to marry this person. Lord, help me to get this job, this position, this promotion. Lord, please, please do it my way. 
After all, Lord, after all, Lord, I'm praying with no doubt whatsoever. I'm just trusting in faith that you'll answer my prayer. I mean, isn't that the way we're supposed to do it? Well, the answer is yes and no. You see, just as doubt is this no man's land somewhere between unbelief and belief, so there also is a promised land, a sweet spot, if you will, that lies somewhere between the two opposite extremes that we often encounter in prayer. And those two extremes are presumption and despair. Now, now presumption, presumption is, is the sin of assuming that we can know God's intent and his actions for the future. Again, James says this. He says, come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist, the mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So James is warning us about presumption because it's a very easy sin for believers to fall into. James, the, the other James, there's two James that we have to deal with. It gets confusing. This is the other James I'm talking about, the James with John, brothers. They, they fell into sin when they approached Christ for the premier positions of authority in the kingdom. If you remember what happened, it says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, that's Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Well, that, that is presumption. You see, they presumed that the kingdom would be political. They presumed that they would be the immediate beneficiaries. <laughs> they literally had no idea how arrogant that was. This presumption is very easy to stumble on. I mean, the disciples as a whole sinned presumptuously when they got into a nasty argument right during the Last Supper on the night before Christ died. And they argued over who would be the biggest big shot, the big political leader. Luke 22 says a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now we have Peter sinning presumptively when he tells Christ in Matthew 26, though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Well, we all know that Peter had to eat those words. But Peter's not alone in his presumption. I mean, it's very easy to put a Christian spin on the sin of presumption by simply saying a prayer and then demanding that God deliver it just like we prayed it. It's very easy to put a presumptive spin on all of our lives when we just assume that we are entitled to a life that is free of pain, free of persecution, free of trials. Face it, all of us operate under a subtext that believes as long as we try to be good, then we are sort of entitled to have good things happen. I mean, we all of us subconsciously presume that God's going to protect us from all harm. And truth be told, our first reaction to suffering, it's almost always shock and dismay and surprise. It's not supposed to happen this way, we think. And that's why if you look at James's opening admonition, 
it, it's so jarring. This is what he says. He says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. And that's why Peter says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You see, God gives us lots of warnings in Scripture because he understands how we think. Because he also understands how easy it is to think presumptively. And how quickly presumptive thinking can lead to the opposite extreme when we find ourselves in a trial. And that response is despair. And we see that in the disciples as well. I mean, here, here's Peter, the champion of presumptive thinking, the one who said he would never leave Christ. And he denies him with cursing and he's left weeping in despair at his sin. I mean, the difference between his despair and, and Judas's is that Peter sought forgiveness. Judas just despaired. And you could argue that the despair of the disciples was self-evident even before it was demonstrated. I mean, Jesus saw it and identified it before it even happened. This is what he said in John 16. He said, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me all alone. See, before the passion started, they had all assumed on his political success. And at the height of his suffering, they all abandoned him. They deserted him. They had despaired of his sovereignty. They despaired of his power, even though he had warned them in advance. And just to reiterate, Thomas gave another example of that despair when, when Jesus calls the disciples to accompany him to the home of Lazarus. And again, this this hostile place that they're going, and Jesus and the disciples know that. Jesus nonetheless bids them go, and Thomas gives this classic answer. He says, so Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. That hardly sounds like a note of triumph from Thomas. I mean, that's obviously a lot more like defeat and despair. You see, presumption can easily give way to despair, a despair that views God with a contempt or even disgust. I mean, it's a despair that says, how could you let this happen to me? Why would a loving God do this? And if you think that's too unseemly for a believer to think or to say, you need to read Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, it says a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And the psalmist goes on and on about the apparent inequity of a world in which the bad guys do well and the good guys do poorly. And at one point, the psalmist says, All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What he's saying there is if I told you how I really felt inside, not only you but your children, they would be scandalized. They might be scandalized, but God wouldn't be. He's seen this all before. He's seen it not just in us, but also in the lives of the great saints of Scripture, from Abraham to Gideon, from Thomas to Peter. He knows all about belief and unbelief. He knows all about presumption and despair. He knows all about genuine faith and genuine doubt. And he knows that everyone at some point will be afflicted with doubt. 
And so the question really isn't, will I ever be captured by doubt? The question really is, is when I am captured, how do I escape? Well, just as doubt is this no man's land somewhere between belief and unbelief, so too, as I've said before, there's this promised land that lies somewhere between presumption and despair. And it's a promised land that has a name. Actually, a name that we're already familiar with. And it's, it's the key to being able to pray without presumption, without despair, and without doubting. Its name is joy. And once again, as soon as you hear that word joy, we need to recapture and redefine what God means by that word as opposed to what the world means. See, the world will forever confuse joy with happiness. And happiness sticks around just as long as good things are happening. And when happiness disappears due to trials and struggles, it often gets replaced with doubt and despair. But not so with joy. Because joy is not happiness. You know what joy is? Joy is the certain and set knowledge that God is good and that God is still in charge regardless what's happening. See, true joy eliminates doubt because doubt emanates from either presumption that you know exactly what God's going to do because you've got it down, you've got a formula down, and you've done all the right things, or despair that because things haven't worked out like you thought they would, then God is either unloving or not powerful enough to affect my life. Joy is this promised land between presumption and despair because it doesn't presume to know how God is going to answer my prayer. You see, joy simply rests in God's goodness, power, and love. And joy doesn't despair when circumstances don't wind up like we thought they would because joy knows that regardless the circumstance, my God is in charge. If you remember James' words on doubt, you see they're intimately connected with joy. This is what he says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see, you ask for wisdom in faith with no doubting by counting it all joy when you encounter various trials. You count it all joy when you single-mindedly know that no matter what happens your God is a good God and he is guiding the outcome. Now we throw off the term God has a plan. God has a plan. God has a plan for everything. Every single thing in this life. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And there's a joy. and Not not the happiness kind of joy that the world loves to tap, but the steady state joy that God provides that eliminates presumption, doubt, and despair when you grab a hold of that and understand that God is in charge. Let me show you how this works just in terms of praying. I'm going to look at a scriptural example of the early church. And the one thing the early church in the book of Acts knew was, was they knew how to pray. 
that they knew how to pray without presumption or doubting or despair because they had experienced all of those things. Now, if you remember, the church got started through a series of spectacular miracles. I mean, there's these folks gathered in an upper room and they have these tongues of fire descend on them and the power of God's Holy Spirit. And they begin to speak in other tongues and Peter preaches a message in which 3,000 people seek repentance and they became the first church. And so you find Peter, he's got the power to heal the sick and raise the dead. And through that power, the church begins to grow. And it grows in leaps and bounds. Acts 4 says, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So God's building up the church, but as, it, as it's growing in power, it naturally becomes more and more presumptive. I mean, God's doing spectacular miracles. People are getting healed, fed, and cared for in this brand new community. So it becomes the place to go to to enjoy the blessings that God was bestowing. But God disciplines those whom he loves, and his great love is the church. And so discipline breaks out in this new church. God disciplined the church by taking the lives of Ananias and Sapphira, who had lied to the Holy Spirit, and immediately presumption, it gives way to fear. Acts 5 says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And we find shortly thereafter the power base is shifting and all the popular support that the church had had, it's gone. Stephen becomes the first martyr and persecution in earnest breaks out on the church. Believers begin to scatter and as they scatter, they preach the gospel everywhere they go. And by the time we get to Acts 12, the church is again exploding in growth in Samaria and Antioch and all the surrounding areas. But as the church grows this time, instead of presumption, it meets persecution. Acts 12 says this. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James. And again, this is not the James who wrote our text this morning. This is the brother of John. He says he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. This particular Herod was a class A dirtbag. And I mean, literally for Herods, that's saying an awful lot. Now, he had been a playboy of sorts. He accrued many, many debts. He was even sent to prison for making some intemperate remarks about the emperor Tiberius. And when Tiberius died, a childhood friend of Herod's rose to power, a fellow by the name of Caligula. Well, Herod became a ruler of Judea and Samaria, and it was he who attempted to just wreak havoc on the church. But remember, Herod was still a Jew. And so even though he acted like a complete pagan, he still did whatever he could to ingratiate himself to his fellow Jews. Why not kill James? So you see, killing James, a leader of this new sect known as Christians, killing him with a sword was a way of currying favor with the Jewish authorities. Because apostates, that's that's people who lead other people astray, their punishment was to be killed by the sword. So Herod saw to it that James received that fate. And he wasn't about to stop at James. This is what Acts 12.3 says. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Well, Herod knew that killing Peter would make him a hero with the Jewish rulers, so so he has him arrested. And and the only reason he doesn't kill him outright was because it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and so he knew he had to wait for that. 
And so he puts Peter in jail and he chains him between two prisoners and he puts two extra guards in his cell just to make sure. See, Peter was a prize. Herod's not about to let that prize go. But what is key here and what we need to learn from is what happens next. In the very next verse, it says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Okay, what is earnest prayer? Well, we know that prayer was not presumptuous because the result of the prayer, we'll find out, was a complete shock to those who were praying. See, they had not set up any agenda. They had not determined that this or that was the way God had to answer their prayer. They simply, earnestly prayed. And we know that their prayer was not from doubt or despair because the scripture describes it as earnest prayer and answered prayer. And James has already told us that prayer prayed in doubt is not going to be answered. Remember, he says, the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. So we know the prayer didn't come from doubt, and it didn't come from despair, and it certainly didn't come from presumption. In fact, it came from where James says exactly it should come from. From a certain knowledge by the early church that God was good. And even though things looked incredibly grim, and Peter's about to be executed, we won't presume, we won't doubt, we won't despair, we will just earnestly pray because God is still in charge and we call that joy here's how God answered that particular prayer this is Acts 12 6 it says now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door regarding the prison guarding the prison and behold an angel of the Lord stood next to him And a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hand. So so picture this. I want you to picture this. Peter is bound between two soldiers. He's awaiting his execution. And and he's sleeping like a baby. Okay, three things happen. It says light floods the cell. Then says Peter gets smacked by an angel. I I can't imagine what that feels like. And says the chains on his hand simply falls off. It says, and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And you get the impression as you're reading this that Peter's, he's still in a daze. And this is what I find so amazing. What I find so so touching is is the angel literally has to slow down and, and tell Peter basically how to get dressed. Dress yourself, put on your sandals. I mean, this is what the angel is telling Peter. And he's apparently still in a fog because he needs even further basic instruction. It says, and he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And again, that explains it. That explains it. Peter thinks he's still in a dream. He thinks he's seeing a vision. It goes on to say, when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And so the angel, having completed his task, he just disappears. And Peter finally comes out of his fog. Verse 11 says, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel 
and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, all that the Jewish people were expecting. What they were expecting was an execution. And what they got instead was a divine display of supernatural power. What they got was a proof that God was a good God and that he was still in charge. And what follows is almost comical. I mean, Peter goes to Mary's house where the saints had all gathered to pray, and he knocks on the door, and Rhoda, the servant girl, she sees Peter through the door. She just flips out. She just leaves him outside. She turns around. She runs back to everybody. She says, there's this dead man walking, standing outside the door. This is what it says. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Actually, what Peter was doing was he was, he was turning over the running of this new church to James. Again, not James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. Remember, he had already been killed by Herod. James and John, they were the sons of thunder who were actual disciples of Jesus himself. And now John found himself bereft of his brother James, who was one of the leaders of this church. I mean, James had been offered up. He'd been sacrificed by, by Herod as a party favor to the ruling Jews who hated this new sect of Christ worshipers known as Christians. So now Peter's turning over the running of Christ's church to this different James. But this James has an amazing backstory as well. This is someone who had known Jesus his entire life, but only recently had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus as Messiah. This James that Peter is speaking of, what was the same James who wrote the very words we're studying this morning? This was the James who was Jesus' physical half-brother. He was raised with him. But this James certainly had known his own form, unique form of presumption. This is somebody who knew Jesus from infancy as his own physical brother. He had lived his whole life in the presence of God in the flesh. And yet he had refused to believe. Now, Scripture records the low esteem that James and his brothers had for Jesus when they challenged him to put his, quote, so-called powers on display. This is John 7, 3. It says, so his brother said to him, that's his brother said to Jesus, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So this is a James who knew presumption, that's for sure. But he's also a James that at this point now knew despair. Uh, he had undoubtedly known the despair of seeing the church that he was part of come under this devastating time of persecution where it seemed that for all practical purposes, God is nowhere to be found. And we know that he understood all about doubt because that's precisely what he's writing about in our text this morning. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. I mean, no one understood better than James that doubt is this no man's land found somewhere between unbelief and belief. And that when it came to prayer, there was in fact this, this promised land that lay somewhere between presumption and despair. And that it was a place of absolute confidence instead of presumption. A place of absolute hope instead of despair. 
a place where doubt was foreign because regardless of how difficult or impossible things seemed to be, there was the absolute certainty, not of outcome, not of result, but of one simple, joyful fact that rendered doubt powerless. And the fact was our God is a good God and he is still in charge no matter what happens. That's the joy that we are aiming at. That's the joy we're aiming at for Andy and Darcy and Philip and Michael and Sarah and Hannah. That's what we're going for. That's why James could say with absolute certainty, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for who you are. I thank you for the sweet spot between presumption and despair. The sweet spot that our prayers have to occupy. And that's praying earnestly. Praying, God, you know best. You know us better than we know ourselves. We're not going to pray, you have to give me A, B, or C. We're going to pray, God, give us what you want us to have. Give us the ability to have the grace to handle what you want us to have. Give us the wisdom to know how to deal with what you want us to have, knowing and trusting that you're a good God and you are in charge. We pray this prayer, Lord, and we seek that for each and one of, every one of us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.